Okay, well, welcome to our 52nd episode of Spurbs Herbs. I'm just amazed I got over 10, so I'm, I'm just shocked every time I, I read that number. Today, we are going to be doing a world herb. You know, originally I had set up Spurbs Herbs to have three different podcasts. One was Chinese Herbology, one was Chinese Formulas, and one was World Herbs. And uh, I was going to do the Chinese ones every week and then the um, switch off every other week on the other two. And then I just realized that's way too much. So we put it all in one. And so now I do, uh, every two weeks I do a Chinese herb, single herb, or that's, that's the goal. It was a little messed up for a while there. Uh, Chinese single herb and then a, a, a world herb on one of the off weeks and a Chinese formula on the other off weeks. So that's where we are. That's our pattern. And so today we're doing a world herb. It's an interesting world herb. It's called curry tree or Mariah uh, Konigjiai. And this is interesting because it's super popular. This is an incredibly commonly used herb, mostly culinary. There was a lot of stuff on the herbal side, the medicinal side of things, but nothing well established or researched. And so it's gonna be an interesting episode. So that is our episode for today. So let's get into it. So as I said, this episode will be looking at another world herb, curry tree or Mariah Konigiai. The leaves are used in both Indian cooking and Ayurvedic medicine, and we will be covering all the usual aspects of this plant, including its uses, history, and any concerns. And as usual, we will be exploring something a little different. It's kind of hard to avoid talking about Indian cooking when the name of the herb includes curry, so we won't avoid it. We will talk about curries. Please join us for today's, dare I say, interesting episode. Before we get going, I would like to talk to you about today's deal. And I'm gonna, what it is, it's a deal on one of my absolute favorite courses that I've ever given. It's an amazing, it's called Why Not How Herbs Work. And it's just, it's a special course for those of us who have asked, why do herbs even help us? In other words, why do they have any effect on humans at all? And it's, it's, it's sort of this strange mixture of, philosophy and science and history. It's just great. So we explore some really interesting territory in this course, including philosophy, talking about holism, reductionism, ecology uh, with Gaia theory, evolution, including concepts of coherent coupling and plant-human coalitions, and explain why herbs may do different things at different doses, including which is called hormesis and xenohormesis. And we'll discuss the implications of each of these on current herb research and usage. This is an amazing journey that answers fundamental questions about herbalism. And it is an absolutely can't miss webinar. If you hurry, you can get this webinar for one third off. Instead of $30 for this two hour continuing education course, it's only $20. Just go to www.integrativemedicinecouncil.org Y W H Y. That's www.integrativemedicinecouncil, C O U N C I L dot org slash W H Y, and you will get this deal. 
Thank you. So let's talk about, I told you we weren't going to avoid it. So let's talk about curry. It's kind of hard to avoid when it's called curry leaf. So, uh, you know, I, I, I will occasionally dabble into Wikipedia, even though it's not the most scientifically corrected. It usually is a good starting place and can send me off to places. So, uh, but here it's pretty, pretty solid. I'm just going to talk a little bit according to Wikipedia. Uh, it's gonna. This is just definitional. A curry is a dish with a sauce seasoned with spices, mainly associated with South Asian cuisine. In southern India, leaves from the curry tree may be included. By the way, that was in the listing for for curry. Uh, in general, this it, you know it wasn't a, a thing for curry tree. That's what we're talking about too. When we talk about curry tree leaves, is what we're talking about today. So it's right there in the definition of curry. There are many varieties of curry. The choice of spices for each dish in traditional cuisine depends on regional cultural tradition and personal preferences. Such dishes have names that refer to their ingredients, spicing, and cooking methods. Outside the Indian subcontinent, a curry is a dish from Southeast Asia which uses coconut milk or spice pastes commonly eaten over rice. Curries may contain fish, meat, poultry, or shellfish either alone or in combination with vegetables. Others are vegetarian. Dry curries are cooked using small amounts of liquid, which is allowed to evaporate, leaving the other ingredients coated with the spice mixture. Wet curries contain significant amounts of sauce or gravy based on broth, coconut cream or coconut milk, dairy cream or yogurt, or legume puree, sauteed crushed onion or tomato puree. Curry powder, a commonly prepared mixture of spices marketed in the West was first exported to Britain in the 18th century when Indian merchants sold a concoction of spices similar to garam masala to the British colonial government and army returning to Britain. And what we're going to do, we're going to talk a little bit about the history of curry. and We're going to find out how much of this history really is tied up with uh, Britain's occupation with India. So... Uh, probably without further ado, yeah, without further ado, we're going to get into that. So Palak Patel has a wonderful small article on the history of curry. Uh, and I'll give you the the, uh, the actual web page for this in just a bit because there's a great, great, it's actually from the uh, Culinary Institute and has a great, uh, uh, a great recipe for beef vindaloo. So we're going to so I'm going to give it to you at the end so you can get that, that recipe. So it started with a specific mystery. She So this article started with a specific mystery she had as an Indian who never made or ate curry until she went to college and studied the history between India and Britain. Why was she so frustrated about the common use of this word? So she embarked on learning more about it. According to this article... The origins of curry began before the British arrived in the subcontinent of India in 1608. In fact, to understand the full history, you have to go further back in the um, colonization timeline to when the Portuguese arrived in India in 1498 and introduced chili. Then came the Dutch, <coughs> excuse me, then came the Dutch in 1605, followed by the French who arrived in South India in 1664. And the new classification of Indian food for non-Indians was defined. It evolved and transformed throughout time. 
Colonization not only played a critical role in transporting Indian food out of India, it reclassified classic dishes that took on their own cuisine. The Portuguese influence on curry has been the most lasting. The country's explorers introduced pepper and vinegar to create a quintessential Portuguese-inspired dish called vindaloo in Goa. The original vindaloo recipe has more than 20 types of peppers combined with pork, and the black pepper was mixed with tamarind water. When the coveted black gold, that's the black pepper, was exported out of India, the Portuguese began to use red chilies instead of black pepper because they were more affordable. It's also believed that the word curry comes from a word from the South Indian state of Tamil and means to blacken with spices. The introduction of pepper into Indian cuisine was coupled with another significant moment in India's history. Queen Elizabeth's establishment of the British, British East India Company to counter the expansion of the Portuguese and Dutch companies. At the height of this, there were about 250,000 members of the British Army residing in India. And after the 1857 Great Indian Mutiny, British bureaucrats came to India to live of their own will and were identified as nabobs. Their love for Indian food, access to spices, and an ad adaptation of local dishes altered to fit their palates, gave birth to the modern style curry dishes that we know today. Kajiri, a popular British egg dish of rice and smoked salmon, turned into a vegetarian dish made with lentils and rice called kichari. Mulligatani, a Tamil word meaning pepper water, was originally used to cure digestion issues and then adopted by Indian cooks for soup with vegetables and spices for the British. These were some of the trademark dishes that were served at elegant dinner parties. As the nabobs moved around India, they took their cooks with them and spread the Indian-inspired dishes fit for British flavor profiles. This is how curry cuisine evolved. As the nabobs completed their posts in India and moved back to Britain, they brought this cuisine back. After, after the coronation, coronation of Queen Victoria, India sent a servant to the queen as a gift, which influenced her apparent love for curry. The fascination with mimicking what the queen ate led to the explosion of Indian food across Britain. In the late 1700s, the first Indian restaurant opened in Britain called Hudistani Coffee House to appease expats that returned from India. So that's sort of a history of curry. So we think of curry as being an Indian dish, but it really is sort of this combination of Indian and Britain influences. And it's very interesting. It's much more modern than I, than I really thought before I, I, did, I embarked on this this little uh, inquiry. So that recipe of beef vindaloo, that's on the website with this article. So if you want to read the article in its entirety, and that website is www.ice.edu slash blog slash beef dash curry. So www.ice.edu slash blog slash beef dash curry, C-U-R-R-Y. So continuing our, our conversation about curry, according to Argawal and Yost in their book, Healing Spices, How to Use 50 Everyday and Exotic Spices to Boost Health and Beat Disease, curry leaf has a lot to do with curry dishes. This is their quote. The wonderfully fragrant tangerine-like flavor of the curry leaf is common in 
is as common in South Indian curries as bay leaf is in American stews. The curry tree, a member of the citrus family that grows in the backyards and the back country throughout India, produces a leaf with a flavor that's half lemon and half tangerine. That flavor adds zest not only to the cuisines of India and Sri Lanka, but also to the cuisines of Burma, Malaysia, and Singapore. And it's an essential spice, not only in curries, but also in dals, lentil stews, samosas, deep fried appetizers, usually vegetarian, sambars, chowder-like broths, chutneys, and breads. It's also an ingredient in South Indian curry powder that we just mentioned. Argawal and Yost continue to discuss the many use, oh, sorry, the many use, where are we doing? Yep, we're good, sorry, I just got a little confused there, okay. Uh, continue to discuss the use of curry leaves in the kitchen, uh, you, and here's a quote from them again, use curry leaves as they're used in Indian cooking, sautéed in sizzling oil at the beginning of cooking. They'll splatter, so cover the pan. Sautéed leaves add crunchiness and aroma to your dishes. In South Indian cooking, fresh curry leaves are most often paired with mustard seed. Fresh curry leaf adds a deep, deeply fragrant and distinctive flavor to food, which is mostly lost when the spice is dried. If you're using dried curry leaves, add a handful to get the same flavor you'd get from one fresh leaf. Uh, here are more ways to add more curry leaf to your diet. So these are kitchen uh, uses of, of curry leaf. Add fresh curry leaves to salads and salad dressing. Interesting. Add them to seafood or meat stews. Try them in chili. Add a few fresh leaves to chicken soup or ladle the soup and add a fresh leaf to each bowl of soup. Use it instead of bay leaf for a change of pace and taste. Uh, the citrus-like flavor of curry leaf makes it a natural for marinades. And finally, add a curry leaf or two to pickling recipes. Interesting for pickling interesting so lots of different possible uses for it uh, on a daily basis and we're going to find out as we get into the medicinal uses some of them they say take eat it every day uh, that's uh, one of the things for sugar control for diabetes so it's nice to have a lot of options where we can throw that into our foods if we're going to do that so with this as a background we should be prepared to start our discussion on the medicinal uses of curry leaves so let's talk about the curry tree. Uh, the species, as we mentioned, is uh, Mariah conigii, uh, also commonly known, uh, also commonly called Bergera conigii, and its family is Rutaceae. So there's actually a lot of synonym species, uh, and Mariah conigii is the most appropriate and proper um, species for this, but there's a lot of synonyms. There's like 10 or 15 that were listed under um, Wikipedia. Um, but the one that kind of popped up more often than not was this um, Bergera conigii. Uh, so uh, that's the one I mentioned here. And as I mentioned, the family is uh, Rutaceae. So we're going to talk about that family, as we always do, in just a minute. The medicinal part are the leaves. You know, almost everything said the leaves are where the medicine is. However, one source, which actually was... Uh, an interesting source. It had a lot of very interesting information, in-depth information that I was that was hard to find elsewhere. Um, and this was from D'Souza. Uh, says the bark, stem, fruits, and roots are also used medicinally. And some of these will be discussed under our, our usage in just a little bit. 
so other names for this, there were a ton of names in every little dialect uh, in, in India, and I just didn't want to list you know, 10 or 15 names that I was not going to be able to pronounce well. But just know there's a lot of different names for this in different languages. And I didn't get into other languages, you know, that it also had, um, you know, German and Spanish and French. And it just, there was a lot. So I kind of narrowed it down a little bit. So the ones that we might hear, sweet neem uh, and mythony. Mitha means sweet. So that's just uh, uh, the same thing, sweet neem. If you're familiar with neem, neem is actually a really popular and important Ayurvedic herb. This is not that herb. Uh, this is uh, sweet neem, which is a, a completely different species than neem itself. This is not related. Uh, and then the one that is um, commonly, the, the Indian name that's commonly, uh, at least when I was reading through it, that commonly is used is Kadipata. And then, of course, curry leaf. Just forget the tree. It's curry leaf uh, or curry leaf tree, uh, curry bush. And a few of those names that are a little bit, those four names, that um, those Indian uh, dialect names that are a little bit more common are Mytholimda and uh, Kuruvipilai. See, that's why I didn't list a whole bunch of them. Uh, Pillai. So that's uh, Pillai. I think that's probably what it is, something along those lines. Its leaves are used in many dishes in India, Sri Lanka, and neighboring countries, often in curries as we just mentioned. All right, let's take a little detour into that Rutaceae family that we were talking about, commonly known as the rue or citrus family of flowering plants. So now we know why it may have some tangerine and lemon type flavors is because it's actually part of the citrus family. Species of the family generally have flowers that divide into four or five parts, usually with strong scents. And they range in form and size from herbs to shrubs and large trees. And this, this tends towards the larger trees. Um, the citrus genus is the most economically important genus in this family. It includes lemons, orange, grapefruit, and limes. Sichuan peppers are also in this family of the genus Xanth Xanthoxylum. Several plants are also used in the perfume industry. By the way, we have in Chinese herbs um, several medicinal herbs in that Xanthoxylum genus as well. So they're medicinal and, and spices as well. The fruit of this family are variable, include berries, droops, hesper uh, hesperidia, samaras, capsules, and follicles. So that's a brief overview of the family, the Rutaceae family. Going back to the curry tree, uh, to taste, you know, normally in Chinese medicine we talk about taste. Um, here it's just the literal taste. Curry leaves are slightly uh, bitter in taste, pungent in smell, and weakly acidic. And this is from one of the review articles that we use in this, uh, in this uh, podcast. Agarwal and Yost, that's that, uh, the big quotes that I just did, the 50 spices, say it has a wonderfully fragrant tangerine-like flavor. So I've never, you know, I'm sure I eat curries. I love Indian food, so I'm sure I, I eat curries. I'm sure I've had some curry leaf. But never alone, so I, I'm I'm really curious to kind of uh, kind of taste that flavor myself. So the use of curry leaves is first seen in the anywhere from the first to fourth century CE. Um, that was actually a quote from a, an article that wasn't. It's a scientific article. It was published and not in a great journal, uh, but the the English was was really rough, and so. Um, I, you know, I had another article that said something about the fourth century 
Um, so I don't know where Mittal and his team got this, uh, going all the way back to the first century, but still, it's been around for a long time. The generic name Mariah derives from John Andreas Murray, who lived from 1740 to 1791, who studied botany under Carl Linnaeus. If you're not familiar with Carl Linnaeus, he's the one who created the binomial system, and, and um, basically, he's the one, the reason why we have these classifications of family, genus, species, all that sort of stuff. Carl Linnaeus is the, is the godfather, basically. And uh, so Murray, Andreas Murray, studied botany under Carl Linnaeus and became a professor of medicine with an interest in medicinal plants at the University of Göttingen, uh, Germany. And I'm, excuse my pronunciations. The specific name um, Konigii derives from the last name of botanist Johann Gerhard Konig. And so that's where we get Konigii as the species name, the specific name. So that's a brief history. So let's talk about traditional Ayurvedic uses of this herb. So before we get into the Ayurvedic uses of this herb, I would like to remind listeners we have discussed some of the basics of Ayurvedic medicine in episodes 8 and 23. Uh, going back to those episodes, we'll give you the listener a review of the basic concepts we are about to discuss. So uh, here is some of those basic concepts. So first of all, the, the rasa or taste of this herb is astringent, bitter, and sweet. Vipaka, the taste after digestion, uh, which is a unique sort of Ayurvedic approach to, like there's a taste after you actually digest it. And here it's katu or pungent. Uh, the guna or qualities of this herb are lagu or light to digest. And um, sniga, I, you know, I don't know how to pronounce this, which is unctuous. That is a quality of the herb. Uh, the variety or potency of the herb is shita or cold. The action or karma of the herb, there's a, several of them. Um, ruchia, uh, which improves taste. Uh, dupana, kindles digestive fire. Pachana, improves digestion. Vishagna, antitoxic. And varnia, uh, improves complexion. And we're going to see a lot of these in the, in the uses as we, as we go along with these actions. And then effect on the doshas, it is uh, kapha, pitta, hara. So it balances kapha and pitta doshas. And again, very technical Ayurvedic sort of approaches, but they, they, that's basically the tridoshas, the three doshas, uh, kapha, pitta, and vata, uh, uh, the three doshas. And uh, so very interesting and fundamental to, to Ayurvedic medicine. So, All right. So... Getting into this, you know, I usually talk about preparing, uh, you know, preparation of the herb and, and uh, another heading I usually have is quality of the herb. It was very difficult to, to get a lot of that going on. We're going to talk about preparations in just a minute, but I thought it was going to be useful for this herb in particular to talk about sourcing for this herb because um, it's, it's, you're going to see, you know, it's, it's better fresh. So how do you get a fresh herb around the, you know, wherever you're at? So according to Argawal and Yost, again, the 50 spices that are healthy, uh, they say curry leaf is incomparable fresh, but the only place you're likely to find it fresh is in an Indian market. If you're lucky enough to live near one, you'll find curry leaves in the produce section packaged on the stem in clear wrap. The leaves look like small, thin bay leaves. Don't pass up an opportunity to buy fresh curry leaves. 
They're not expensive, and they won't go to waste because you can freeze them. To keep curry leaves fresh and fragrant, keep them on the stem until you're ready to use them. Then pull them off one by one as needed. They keep in the refrigerator for about a week. As mentioned, they freeze well too. Just pop the bag in your freezer and pull off the leaves as needed. They will keep in the freezer for about two months. Once frozen, they form dark spots and can turn almost black, but this change in appearance doesn't decrease flavor. It's best to chop up darkened, thawed curry leaves. Curry leaf is also available dried or as a powder. You can purchase both in Indian markets or online, though uh, through websites that sell Indian spices. Both dried and powdered curry leaf keeps for about a year in an airtight container away from heat and light. And as we mentioned earlier, if you are going to use the dry, you want to use more of it than the fresh. Uh, Here is a interesting website to find and grow your own curry tree. So if you want to try growing it yourself, uh, the website is pinchofseeds.com slash um, buying dash a dash curry dash leaf dash plant. So buying a curry leaf plant, but with dashes between every word. That's the website. So pinchofseeds.com slash buying a curry leaf plant with dashes between every word. From reading this article, it doesn't appear to be the easiest tree to grow outside of its native environment. It, you know, it's from India, so it likes heat and damp and doesn't like cold. And it can take many years before getting large enough leaves to use for culinary or medicinal uses. But how wonderful would it be to have a constant source of this wonderful herb? Okay, so with that, let's actually get into the preparations and dosage. Uh, which appear to be closely aligned with specific medicinal uses of the curry leaf. Now, it was hard just to kind of get dosing on this, which is unusual. You know, usually when you have an herb, you do you determine doses. So I, I did find there was an article from Sharma that went into a whole bunch of uses and then the actual how you use the curry leaf. So um, we're going to do that. So uh, for diarrhea... They, uh, Sharma says a bunch of curry leaves can be ground up and the paste can be eaten or the juice of the leaves can be consumed. For gas gastrointestinal issues, make juice out of a bunch of curry leaves, add lime juice and consume the mixture to cure indigestion. Alternatively, a paste made from the leaves can also be added to buttermilk and taken every morning on an empty stomach. So that's interesting. Hair care. Dry curry leaf powder mixed with oil can be applied to strengthen hair roots. And the paste from curry leaves can be applied in cases of gray hair. So there's a, uh, an interesting one as well. Skin care. The juice or paste of the leaves can be applied to burns, cuts, bruises, skin irritations, and insect bites. So that was all from Sharma. Remember, I mentioned D'Souza earlier. She had uh, a really interesting article on this, and it had... Lots of information in some areas and not a lot of information in other areas, but it was interesting. And here they, they talk about uh, basically uses of this as well. And you're going to see there's some that are actually the first one, well, a couple that are similar. So for diarrhea, um, they say the green, she says the green leaves are eaten raw. So just eat them raw. That's interesting for diarrhea. For morning sickness, curry leaves are used along with lime juice. For boils, make the leaves into a paste. For renal pain or kidney pain, juice the root of the curry tree. So now we have root use. 
for poisonous animal bite, the roots and bark can be used. It didn't explain how to prepare them, but again, we have the bark now, so we have another another part of the, the tree being used. For vomiting, use an infusion of the leaves. So in other words, let the leaves, um, you know, have some hot water, pour them over the leaves, and just let them infuse. For stomach upset, a paste taken with buttermilk on an empty stomach, so very similar to what Sharma said. In fact, the same as what Sharma said, or one of the, the choices Sharma mentioned. And here's an interesting one. For cataracts, fresh curry leaf juice can be used to prevent the development of cataracts. So that's an interesting one. Uh, I'm, I'm curious to how the, the juice uh, tastes, uh, um, you know, with the, with the flavor profile that we've been discussing. And then Sampath, another article, adds some more health benefits and preparations. For anemia, eat one date with two leaves on an empty stomach every morning. Interesting. One of the, the constituents, which I actually don't mention when we talk about constituents, but um, came up uh, because it wasn't one of the main ones, is iron. There's iron in, in uh, curry uh, tree leaves. And so it might actually be very useful for anemia in that, in that context. Oh, interesting. Someone said maybe as an eye drop for glaucoma. I, you know, I, that's an interesting one. I mean, the, the difference between glaucoma and cataracts is, is a lot. There's a, you know, those are not very similar at all. Um, but I didn't see anything in my reading that it would be useful for glaucoma. Uh, but that's an interesting one. I, I don't know if I'd go off experimenting on that, but I think it's an interesting idea. Okay, back to Sam Path. To protect the liver, heat one spoon of homemade ghee. Add the juice of a cup of curry leaves, some sugar, and freshly powdered black pepper. And that's to protect the liver. To help blood sugar levels, add curry leaves to every meal. There you go. Eat it all the time. Uh, diarrhea. Uh, gently crush some leaves into a ball the size of a berry and drink it with some buttermilk. Do this two or three times a day. So similar but slightly different from the other uh, options for diarrhea. For can <coughs> for congestion in the chest or nose, take a spoon of powdered leaves and add honey to it. Make it a paste and eat this twice a day. Interesting. And finally, to help strengthen your hair and fight dandruff, add the juice of the leaves to 100 milliliters of coconut oil. 100 milliliters is about four ounces of coconut oil. Heat this oil till it turns blackish and apply it to your scalp regularly. There you go. Lots of hair care and skin issues. So that is preparations and dosages. Those are traditional uses for this and traditional preparations for the most part. Um, and so gives us an, an overview of what we can do traditionally with this as well. As far as Chinese medical actions, uh, looking through several texts and multiple Google searches, did not find any Chinese medical descriptions of curry leaves. This is the first herb I have not been able to find that in, by the way. Uh, and this is interesting given the widespread use of this herb and the fact that many, if not most, Ayurvedic herbs will make it into the Chinese pharmacopoeia, at least at some point. So that's, that's interesting that this was not there. Maybe the fact that this herb is used medicinally but is primarily a culinary herb may play a role in its missing from Chinese herbology. Just a little shocked. It's the first time, like I said, I, it, sometimes I've had to really search, but I've always been able to find something, and I, I just wasn't on this one combinations other than some minor additions such as lime juice sugar and buttermilk uh, with one ex and ghee was one of them with one exception there were no major combinations with other herbs at least medicinal herbs 
discussed in any of the sources. And that one exception was what we just talked about was adding black pepper with ghee and the juice of the leaves to help protect the liver so the for its hepatoprotective properties. Contents. So this has actually been very well studied. There's a lot of articles on the contents of this. One review of this herb uh, by Balakrishnan discusses dozens of different bioactive and phytochemical compounds, including flavonoids, terpenoids, and polyphenols. I'll talk about this on the next slide a little bit. Also, if you're, you're getting this uh, as, a, as a continuing education, I, I made a handout for you that's available to you as well. Argawal and Yost say it includes antioxidants, beta carotene, and vitamin C, which is why it's probably helpful for the eyes. And, uh, quote, an elite team of antioxidants called carbazol, um, carbazol, excuse me, carbazol alkaloids that are abundant only in curry leaf. So there you go. So lots of antioxidants. And antioxidant, as we get into the scientific use, you know, uh, uses of this herb um, antioxidant is the one that keeps popping up. So a very strong antioxidant. And here is a list. If you're, you're listening, I'm not going to go through all these, but uh, there's a list probably about 25 different uh, uh, constituents, bioactive compounds. And a lot of them, uh, as, as happens with these, when they're unique to a particular herb, they will uh, take on some of the, the, uh, uh, the, the words of the herb. So for example, Mariah um, um, Folene and Mariah Zoline are, are two of these components that we have. Conigene, uh, you know, so it's, it's bringing up uh, Marianine. So there's all these herbs that are from the, the genus and species as well. And, and basically, when we look at these bioactive compounds, they have been shown we're going to get into the science a little bit, so take shown evidence, a little bit of a grain of salt, but they can be cytotoxic, antimicrobial, anti-cancer, anti-hyperlipidemic, so that means, uh, cytotoxic means it kills cells, usually we're talking about bad cells, uh, antimicrobial, of course, means it's against bugs, uh, antioxidant, as I mentioned, uh, anti-diabetic, and I said anti-hyperlipidemic, so this is good for uh, cholesterol and triglycerides in the blood. Uh, and that pretty much hits anti-tumor, neuroprotective. Uh, anti one was the antibacterial, which I thought was interesting because everyone else says antimicrobial and there was one that said antibacterial. Uh, so I thought that was a little unique. But that's, you know, generally that's what all of these kind of fall under as to what they do or don't do. And there's, a, like I said, there's a lot of them here. So we're not going to talk too much more about them. We're moving on quickly. Not so quickly. All right, let's talk about the science of this herb. We, while we have discussed specific uses and preparations of curry leaves, there are many other medicinal uses. The science on these are not well established and are mostly based on animal studies or studies using specific constituents, not whole herb extracts, in randomly controlled trials in humans. Uh, Balakrishnan, who I, I mentioned earlier, did a review article and his team discussed several activities of curry leaf that show some support, including antifungal properties. Uh, and this was shown in, in in vitro studies. So in vitro means in glass. So that means um, not in, in a 
animals or in humans. So always take in vitro studies with a grain of salt because basically just because you put two chemicals together and it has a reaction in the, in the lab doesn't mean it's going to happen that way in the human body. So um, it's antifungal in, in vitro and in many rat and mice studies. So now we're starting to get into in vivo, which means in life, um, but still animal studies. All of these, none of these were in human studies. So take them all with a grain of salt. If it, you know, just because it does something in a rat or a mice does not mean it does it in a human. Uh, so antifungal, antibacterial had in vitro studies, hepatoprotective, which means it protects the liver, and that had in vitro and in rat and mat, mat, mice studies. Uh, immunomodulatory, so in other words, it helps the immune system in rat and mice studies. Nephroprotective, that means it helps the kidneys in rat studies. Anti-diabetic in rat studies. Anti-cancer in, in vitro and in rodent studies. Neuroprotective, protecting the nerves in in vitro and rat studies. Radioprotective and chemoprotective. So radiation protective, that's you know, radioprotective and chemoprotective for, for chemotherapy. Uh, and, and that was a single mice study. So not a lot of support for that at all, but certainly worth you know, studying more. And wound healing, actually helping wounds heal in a single rat study. So that was all from the review article by uh, Balakrishnan and his team. D'Souza adds it's anthelmintic, which means it, it helps worms. Uh, analgesic, which means it, it, it helps pain. And uh, nephroprotective as well to this list without any references at all. So we don't know. Um, where she's getting that, but uh, it's interesting. We did talk about the nephroprotective, but the anhelmintic and analgesic we haven't really seen in the other ones. Uh, Mittal and their team add several more activities with singular animal studies, unless noted. Uh, dental carry, so, so uh, having um, um, uh, cavities. Dental caries, it, it can be helpful. Anti-amnesiac, so it helps uh, of, you know, prevent amnesia. Anti-ulcer. Antipyretic, which means it reduces fever in both a rat and a rabbit study. Cardioprotective, in other words, it helps the heart in a mice and a rat study. And also anti-Alzheimer's disease. Uh, so some interesting stuff there. And again, at least this one talks about where it gets it, but they're just singular and they're all animal studies, except for a couple of them were multiple animal studies. So take it all with a grain of salt, but really interesting uh, to point in a direction. So again, these studies are not very strong, but there does appear to be a lot of preliminary evidence of health benefits. But more and, and large human studies need to happen to substantiate these initial and in vitro and animal study findings. So I, I think this is all very interesting, but I don't, I don't, I wouldn't put a lot of faith in it at all at this point. Drug-herb interactions. There was one study by Pandit and, and their team uh, and 2012 looked at extracts of this herb, whole herb extracts of this herb, and cytochrome P450 interactions, which of course is a major target of, of drug-herb interaction research, and they found no significant interaction. So it does not appear that this uh, it interferes with cytochrome P450 at all. So that's good. That's, that's one of the major ones. There was, and, and, and I couldn't find anything else on interactions, nothing on transporter proteins and 
high, pro, you know, protein binding or anything along those lines. Those are our usual targets for looking at this. But there was one interesting rat study. So keep it in mind, rat study rather than human study uh, resulted in death when combining curry leaves with amlodipine. So they believe this was because of the antihypertensive effects, so it lowers blood pressure effect of the herb, combined with the similar effects of the drug, resulting in blood pressure so low uh, that the mouse died. So interesting, the mice died, I should say mice died. So it's, it's interesting uh, because we haven't really talked about antihypertensive effect of the curry leaf itself, uh, and yet they're saying that that's, you know, they think did it. Amlodipine is an antihypertensive drug designed to lower blood pressure. So it's, it's an interesting combination. And I think uh, as we're going to see as we talk about cautions, uh, you should not be combining this herb with antihypertensives. It's probably not a good idea in general. Though, you know, just because this happened in rat doesn't mean it'll happen in humans. But still, be on the safe side. So let's talk about those concerns other than the drug-herb interactions. There are not any documented side effects in humans. There are a few they mentioned in, in uh, rats and uh, that, but I, nothing major. Uh, according to Singh, uh, caution should be used when combined with antihypertensive agents based on that one study. He also states that there's not enough information to determine the safe use of this herb in, in pregnant and breastfeeding women. Caution should be taken using this herb in small children and older adults due to their weak immune systems. That's that's a quote from them, due to their weak immune systems, which I think is interesting. Um, I, I generally, you know, giving this herb to, or giving an herb or not to small children and older adults doesn't usually come down to my thinking a weak immune system plays a role in that. Um, I'm more concerned uh, that small children aren't fully formed and can't get rid of any toxins. And in older adults, I'm, I'm worried that their, their liver and kidneys aren't working well, and so the toxins stay around longer as well. That's what I'm more worried about in, in uh, small children and older adults. The reality is there's nothing to show, say that this can't be used in small children and older adults. We're just being overly cautious. This, um, this article was being overly cautious, and I, I think not inappropriately, uh, that um, you should be very careful if you're going to do it in small children and, and older adults, which pretty much is, is universal for most things, I would say. So. so that's it. There weren't any more specific concerns in general uh, for this. So overall, it, because it is a food, and usually our food substances tend to be very safe, uh, though we know as, as, as practitioners, uh, a lot of us know that um, just because it's a food and eaten uh, frequently doesn't mean it's safe, and if you don't Believe me, just look at any line at McDonald's and how often someone will eat McDonald's and think it's okay. No, that's not safe. So it's good for your soul every so often, but um, not safe for her for uh, frequent use. All right. So that was our episode today. We started our discussion today with an overview of curry, its history, and then specifically discussed the use of curry leaf and its place in the kitchen. Uh, from there, we did our deep dive into this interesting herb with lots of fascinating uses and preparations. Lots of preparations I'm just not used to. And again, I find that with Ayurvedic herbs, they often have preparations that, as a Chinese herbalist, I just, I'm like, wow, that's interesting. 
Uh, so uh, lots of fascinating uses and preparations, but not a lot of substantial research. But who wouldn't want to add some curry deliciousness into their health routine? Overall, a very interesting herb with some potentially very useful effects. So in our next episode, we will be looking at another Chinese herb, lian chao or forsythia fruit. This is a very important and commonly used herb in the clear heat and resolved toxicity category. It is frequently used to treat colds. Uh, because of that, you know, I, I will say like frequency-wise, like licorice is in most formulas. Licorice is very commonly used in Chinese medicine. But a lot of people aren't on formulas all the time. But colds, you know, they'll fight colds you know, maybe once or twice a year. This might be one of the herbs that is used more, most often. In other words, it's actually taken internally more often than a lot of others, unless someone's taking herbs on a regular basis. So very frequently used herb uh, in that context. And as usual, we will be exploring something a little different. I'm really looking forward to deepening my knowledge about this wonderful herb. It is a super important herb, and I want to know more. So please join us, and don't forget to subscribe so you won't miss out on even one exciting episode. That is our episode today. Thank you very much for listening. If you like this podcast, would you do us a humongous favor? Man, it would be humongous. Give us a five-star rating in your favorite podcast app. We would really appreciate it, and we thank you in advance for that. And remember, you can get CEUs, Continuing Education Units, and National Certification Commission of Acupuncture and Medicine Professional Development Activities at www.integrativemedicinecouncil.org. That's www.integrativemedicinecouncil.org. And you can always get in touch with me at Dr. Greg at spurbsherbs.com. That's S-P-E-R-B-S, H-E-R-B-S.com, or at our website, www.spurbsherbs.com. There were a lot of websites on this, this episode, so I apologize for that. But I'm always excited to get more information out there, so I won't hesitate to do that. And with that, we have our bibliography. That's a good-sized one today. I appreciate you hanging out. Thank you. Spurs. The proceeding was presented by Dr. Greg Sperber. We would like to thank Janelle for all her support and everybody else who contributed to this program. Janelle. Timothy, Timothy Dobbins, Dobbins, Roger Campbell.